The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Almost every week, astronomers announce another discovery of planets around other stars. Nearly every discovery announcement is accompanied by a proclamation by a wise astronomer that this planet leads us ever closer to discovering life beyond the Earth. Are we alone, or do we have company out there? Whatever the answer, knowing it will trigger one of the greatest intellectual challenges in human history, not the least of which will be a theological one for terrestrial religions. Might a great spiritual awakening and revolution lie just ahead of us? Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. And to tell us more, our special guest is David Weintraub, a professor of astronomy at Vanderbilt University, where he directs programs in the communication of science and technology and in scientific computing. He is the 2015 winner of the Klopstick Award from the American Association of Physics Teachers, which recognizes the outstanding communication of the excitement of contemporary physics to the general public. He earned his bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy at Yale in 1980 and his PhD in geophysics and space physics at UCLA in 1989, before he was appointed to the Vanderbilt Astronomy Faculty in 1991. He is an expert in the study of star and planet formation, and is the author of three books for popular audiences, including Religions and Extraterrestrial Life, How Will We Deal With It?, which is the focus of tonight's interview. And we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. Professor David Weintraub joins us directly from Nashville, Tennessee. Hello, Professor Weintraub, and welcome to Veritas. Pleasure to be on the show with you tonight. It's my pleasure. May I call you David? You may, please. Well, before we begin, let me just read this excerpt from Einstein. He actually, it's when he arrived in San Diego on December 31st, 1930. And it goes like this. Were there men, he, uh, he was asked, living elsewhere in the universe? Other beings, perhaps, but not men, he answered. Did science and religion conflict? Not really, he said, though it depends, of course, on your religious views. And that's why we have Professor Weintraub here today. Why did you write this book, David, Religions and Extraterrestrial Life? How will we deal with it? I was intrigued by the fact that my colleagues in astronomy over the last 20 years have become spectacularly successful at detecting planets around other stars. And of course, their goal is not to detect planets around other stars. The goal is to study the planets around the other stars in the pursuit of information that would tell us whether there's life on any of those planets. The ultimate goal is to find out whether we're alone in the universe. So we have transitioned from a, a period when I was in graduate school 35 years ago at that point in time, we knew of nine planets orbiting one star in the entire universe. Now, of course, one of those planets is controversial, Pluto, but that's not the subject. Uh, right. 
But at that time, the only planets in the entire universe we knew about were the planets that orbited the sun. And that's not true anymore. We now know of thousands of other planets around other stars. And at the time I began investigating, doing the research for this book about a decade ago, we knew of many hundreds of planets around other stars. And I thought to myself, why are we doing this? What are the consequences of doing this? Because scientists are very good at doing their science. They're not always as good at thinking about the consequences of the science that they're doing. And in this particular case, astronomers are just going about their business, doing what they can do, discovering planets around other stars, but those discoveries have consequences. And I tried to think about what those consequences might be. One of those consequences could be that we would discover life on another planet in which case we would know that we're not alone in the universe. And I thought to myself, what do we do with that information? How do I deal with that information? What's the impact of knowing that? And that's what led me to this book. And we always discuss this on this program, the ramifications of, because I guess the first answer would be there is life. I think, in my opinion, that it's probably going to be microscopic or some kind of a microorganism before they actually give us the big news eventually. But even so, the ramifications, societal and religious, would be enormous. And I'm glad that you're addressing this. Now, almost two and a half thousand years ago, Aristotle argued that Earth was the center of the celestial spheres and therefore of the entire universe. Just So just because he thought Earth was the center of the universe, why does it negate the possibility that the spheres above us could be inhabitable? As understood by Aristotle, which is very different from how the Aristotelian universe was understood by Aristotelians who came after Aristotle. But as understood by Aristotle, the physics of the universe dictated that there were five different kinds of elements, earth, air, fire, and water, down here in the so-called terrestrial realm where we live. And out in the heavens, everything was made of ether. Ether was a perfect substance. And the reason Aristotelians knew it was perfect is because all that stuff in the heavens appeared to go in perfect circles around the earth. And perfect stuff, of course, must move in the perfect uh, shape, which would be a circle, as they thought. So the stuff out there was not made of the stuff we're made of. The stuff out there was made of perfect substances, ether. And that couldn't be living stuff. That was different stuff. And anything made of earth, air, fire, and water, according to the laws of Aristotelian physics, excuse me, had to be down here at Earth, at the center of the universe, because again, according to Aristotle, the universe was infinitely old, and that meant any piece of Earth that was somewhere in the universe had had an infinite amount of time to do what it was supposed to do. And what it was supposed to do if it was made of Earth was fall toward the center of the universe. So all of the Earth all of the earthy stuff in the entire universe had to already be right here at the center. There could be no other Earths. And if there were no other Earths, there couldn't be any other life because life clearly has to be on something like an Earth as understood by an Aristotelian. I'm not an Aristotelian, but I wonder, did he speculate of life perhaps in another planet within our solar system? No, the other planets in our solar system, as understood by the ancient Greeks, 
as understood by anybody who followed Aristotle until the time of Copernicus 500 years ago, the other planets, Earth, Mars, Mercury, Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, they were stars. They were wandering stars. They were made of, of ether just like the other stars in the sky. They just happened to move a little bit every day. But they were not planets the way we think of them as planets. They were moving stars just like the other stars. So can we say who actually debunked, if we, if we can say debunked, Aristotle's theories? Was it Copernicus? Copernicus gave it a kickstart. Copernicus said, of course, that the sun is the center of the universe. The earth orbits the sun. Copernicus couldn't prove that. But Copernicus started the controversy when Johannes Kepler came along and came up with his laws for planetary orbits. That kind of suggested that Kepler was probably right. And when Galileo invented his telescope and looked out and saw that Jupiter had moons that seemed to go around Jupiter and Venus went through phases, which suggested that Venus really did orbit the sun. That was pretty much the nail in the coffin for Aristotle. There was no going back. At that point, Aristotelian physics was dead. It took another half century until Isaac Newton came along to come up with new laws of physics that explain how planets could orbit the sun, how the sun could be the so-called center of the universe. But the combination of Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo really took down Aristotle. Since we're discussing, we usually don't discuss religion per se here, but because the book deals with, with the possibilities, I'm glad to be ask, asking these questions. With the church, the Roman Catholic Church, what do you think really pushed them to go from the geocentric to the heliocentric model? What really compelled them after so many years? Well, it took them several centuries to move in that direction. The problem for the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval Roman Catholic Church, is that much of Roman Catholic medieval theology was very closely wedded to Aristotelian concepts. And it was very hard for them to separate their theology from Aristotle's ideas. So when Copernicus, when Galileo said Aristotle's wrong, that seemed to be a, a pretty significant theological threat to the foundation of, of Roman Catholic theology as it had been established by Thomas Aquinas a few hundred years before. So in order to accept the Copernican model as right, in order to say, okay, the earth really does orbit the sun, they had to reach a point at which they no longer felt that that idea was theologically threatening. And it took several hundred years of effort before they evolved uh, to that point. So by the 1820s, they had clearly recognized that the powers that be within the Roman Catholic Church had clearly recognized that science wasn't going to go backwards, that the earth really did orbit the sun, and they had to find a way to accommodate that idea, and they finally did. Did this, correct me if I'm wrong, did this correlate during the time when there's almost a revolution and people were just complaining that the church was not progressive enough, and that's when the observatory finally started in Castel Gandolfo because people really wanted to step outside and see what was above us? No, I don't think it was quite that 
way. I don't think the Roman Catholic Church was subject to that level of controversy at that time. And the Roman Catholic Church had, for many hundreds of years prior to 1820, been very forward-looking in terms of the value of astronomy. So the Collegio Romano in Rome, the observatory at the Collegio Romano in Rome, had been established long before the time of Galileo. And the Roman Catholic astronomers had some important jobs to do. One of the important jobs was to establish the appropriate time for Easter in the spring and to get the calendar right, because the date of Easter is set to be the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Right. And the vernal equinox is set by astronomy. It's not set by our calendar. And we tend to think the vernal equinox is about March 21st, but that only works right if the calendar is right. So our modern calendar is known as the Gregorian calendar. It was put in place in about 1582 by Roman Catholic astronomers who who fixed the calendar at the request of the Pope, Pope Gregory at the time, who recognized that the calendar, which had a leap year but had effectively too many leap years, was gradually moving out of sync with the time of Easter. Easter was changing from a spring holiday, uh, I believe, into a winter holiday. It might have been the other way around. I'd have to think about that carefully. But it was moving through the calendar. So it was about 11 days off. And what they did is they added 11 days to the calendar so that March 10th became March 21st. They just skipped 11 days. And then they decided that three times out of every 400 years, we'd skip a leap year. And by doing that, they got the calendar much closer to being correct. That was a job that could only be done by astronomers who had very accurate knowledge of the length of the year and the rotation period of the Earth and the movements, the apparent movements of the stars. And they put it all together and they got the calendar right. So the Roman Catholic Church has a long tradition of valuing astronomy. But at the end of the 16th century, they really wanted astronomers to come up with the answer they wanted for the Earth being the center of the universe, the reverse idea, the sun being at the center of the universe. That just was too difficult a change for them to become reconciled too quickly. What about the birth of Jesus, allegedly December 25th? Does it, is there any correlation between that and the winter solstice and their interest in astronomy? No, I don't think so. The date of Jesus's birth was not set at December 25th for several centuries after the time of Jesus. And I don't think anybody actually believes that that was the real date of his birth. But it was effectively set there, perhaps to protect early Christians because there was a Roman holiday that was associated with the winter solstice. And perhaps if they celebrated Jesus's birth at about that time, they would be able to hide uh, their celebrations around the celebrations other uh, members of the Roman Empire were enjoying at the time. But I don't think the, the birth of Jesus is at all associated with the winter solstice. 
it's just the time that was set for it. Now, this is a very general question, and we'll dissect each religion, hopefully individually. But from all religions, what are the, in your opinion, the percentages of people who believe in extraterrestrial life? Are there more in one religion than another? There are, although the differences are not extreme. And I'm not going to pretend that I have those numbers in my head and other people have done some surveys. But in general, I'm actually looking in my book because you asked the question and I found the survey page that 44% of Muslims, 37% uh, Jews, Hindu, 36%, Christians, 32% were likely to say, yes, there's life in the universe beyond the earth. Those numbers to me are all fairly similar. I think in the, the survey groups, they're small enough that to claim that 32% is really different from 37% would be pushing it. I think the bottom line is one third to half of everybody seems to think that extraterrestrials exist and half to two thirds of any survey group think the opposite. And there are these small differences between religious groups. I think conservative Christians are a little bit more conservative on this idea. Atheists are probably a little bit more open to the idea of extraterrestrial life and their religious reasons for that. But by and large, most of us statistically are in about the same position. Where do agnostics fall in there? Probably the most open-minded, I guess, to the possibility, I guess. Probably, though I don't think I've seen agnostics in any of these surveys. Atheists, yes, but not agnostics, I don't think. Now, from uh, is the Earth the only location in the universe where life exists or can exist? You discuss that question in the book. Life is the only place in the universe where life exists as far as we know right now. That doesn't mean the Earth is the only place that life exists. We just don't have information, accurate information to tell us about other places in the universe. In fact, even our, our neighbor Mars could have life. We don't know. The moon, our closest neighbor, almost certainly is sterile. It has no atmosphere. It has almost no water. It has no place for life to hide. Uh, Venus almost certainly is completely sterile. It's so hot on the surface of Venus. There's no water on Venus. But there are other places in the solar system where life might exist. Jupiter has some moons. Saturn has some moons where the conditions exist such that life of some sort could perhaps exist, but we have no idea. And in environments around other stars, we have absolutely no idea. All we can do is speculate, but our speculation is rapidly becoming informed by actual scientific data. That's where I think we're in this remarkable transition from a point at which asking the question, is there life elsewhere in the universe, used to be a purely philosophical, speculative question. The best way to answer that question 20 years ago would have been to open a bottle of wine and sit in front of a fireplace and argue with your friends because there was no way of answering the question. But with our planetary probes that are exploring Mars, exploring Saturn, exploring the moons of Saturn, the moons of Jupiter, with telescopes that can now study planets around other stars, We're going to change the way we answer that question. We're going to have data that enables us to answer that question. And with data come answers. 
And those answers may surprise us one way or the other. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it because you don't want to believe. You want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.